All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today, we have Jonathan on the show, who is a staff writer at the New York Times and bestselling author of All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire and Boys Among Men. His latest book, The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop is out now and is also one of Amazon's best books of 2022. I can see why I've been really deep in this book. It's a big one. I'm, I'm warning you now, but it's well worth it. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Mark, my man, how are you doing today? I'm 100%. I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited that you took on this, what I can only imagine being a massive challenge to pull something you know like this topic together. I mean, it's... Uh, we're going to get into this, but I mean, for it's a big one, right? I get this is a big topic. It's it's funny because I think I appreciated how big of a topic and process it was going to be as I was enter, entering it, but I had no idea. Like once I was in the thick of it, like I, I still remember, like I would like tell journalism friends, like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to working on an oral history of hip hop," and I would get you know like side eyes and like, <laughs> like yeah, exactly, you can't be serious. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Well, I, I the only thing I can relate to, like when I think of uh, my book, was like, you know, writing short chapters or profiles on people like Maya Angelou or or Picasso, and like having the hardest time at the beginning to, you know, like how how can I possibly do uh, these people uh, justice in just such a short time? And then thankfully, I had really good editors remind, at least for my book, reminding me that. You're not writing a biography on these people. You're 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 trying to bring up the mental fitness and so forth. So, you know, for you though, I mean, it's it's it it's literally a beautiful chronological you know ordering of events, and there's just so much richness in there, and and so much that I feel like most of us just don't know. Like we we know the songs and we know a lot of the artists, but there's just such beautiful um, detail there on how that all came to be. So we'll jump into that in a minute, I, but I just want to start the show the same way that I do for for all guests, and that's just to avoid job titles and what you're working on, and really just understand who you are as as a human. So that's the question, Jonathan. Like you know, like put all, putting all that stuff aside. Like who are you? Like what? How would you define your you know your core characteristics of 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 uh, what makes you you? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, you know, for anybody who is lucky enough to be a parent but once you have children who enter the world i think that's how you view yourself first and foremost because you're shepherding young people through this life and yeah. i have two sons they're eight and five and that's how i really view myself first is you know trying to take everything i've learned in my life the, the good and the bad and shepherd them through the beginning stages of uh of their own lives and you know whether whether i'm doing it good or doing it bad i guess i'll find out in about <laughs> 15 20 years but we're just trying to keep them alive every day you know <laughs> you know especially at the beginning yeah right? that's that's the goal like when when you've never had anybody who depends on you for every single thing and they're helpless and when they're babies that is the overwhelming goal it's just to get through this day and keep them alive <laughs> it's so true at, at some point mark i'm gonna I'm going to keep a tally and just be like, 
like when they get older and just say, do you know how many times I literally saved your life and you doing something? Exactly, right. You were like two or three. <laughs> That's so true. I could, I could relate. I have a, a six-year-old and, and we have a uh, one-year-old now, just turned one last week. So uh, there was, you know, we've been reminded several times of what, uh, what we essentially forgot, you know, in that kind of baby stage because there's a big uh, age gap there. Um, but so th- those feelings or how you answered that is is rings very, very true and fresh to me, at least right now. Just keep that guy safe and alive at this point. Yeah, what, just turn one and right in the thick of it again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you you also forget like some of those, you know, he's at that that age as well where, you know, he's like really starting to like kind of melt you with the big smiles and stuff. And like, oh yeah, I forgot about, you know, how almost how awkward, you know, they can be at, at that age, but just <laughs> melt your heart, you know? So exactly. it's been fun. So regarding this book, the topic, I mean, how did, how did it all come about? How did it come to be for you? You know, where, how did you even land on, um, all right, let's, <laughs> let's tackle hip hop. Yeah. So with my books, at least I always try to pick topics that I'm really passionate about. When you're writing books, it's a very laborious process where you're going to want to throw in the towel multiple times <laughs> yeah. before that book is actually done. And, and the thing that makes you keep coming back to it is that passion, that, that overwhelming drive to see this thing to completion. And I'm sure that being an author yourself, there's no greater feeling or one of the greatest feelings is having this idea in your head. And that's where it exists for so long, for years and years. And then you actually hold the thing in your hand. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah. And so I, I knew that hip hop was coming up on its 50 year anniversary. I'm very passionate about hip hop. I, there's never been a time in my life where I feel like it wasn't uh, some, some part of me. It wasn't something that was motivating me. It's always been an educational tool when I need to be picked up, uh, it's just always been there. And mm-hmm. selfishly, I wanted to learn more. I felt like I had a good depth of knowledge about hip hop, uh, but I still felt like I could learn more. And almost selfishly in that regard, it was like, you know, why not do a book on it and educate myself as well? It it was, from, from my understanding, roughly about a, a four-year project. And I'm curious you know, at the very beginning when, you know, you, you came to the conclusion saying, okay, I'm going to do this. What was, what was your self-talk or how did you prepare your mind to just cover or, you know, just to get, get in the, I guess, in the right mental space to be able to, to cover such a big topic and not be, you know, not be too hard on yourself so that you can actually make the progress and, and, and deliver this book. Yeah. So, the first thing I did was I probably read almost every hip hop history book I could get my hands on. And I probably read about 25 to 30 books. And there's been a couple of really, really great hip hop history books. Dan Charnas has a great book. Uh, and Jeff Chang has a great book. But I thought that mine could be different because it could be a oral history style where you get these pioneers and bricklayers of this genre talking in their own words. So that was the first thing I did was just read a bunch of books and jot down names and different tent poles. I knew when I was doing this book, like I would have to hit different significant moments in the evolution of hip hop. So I probably charted, you know, like a hundred 
across different moments that I would be looking to dig into. And I, and I outlined, and I, I went from there. I try to be very meticulous in outlining and planning. And that way, I set myself up with a roadmap. You know, on those times when I get lost or distracted, I can come back to, to the map that I made for myself at the very beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm curious wh- whether this book or, or some of your other books that are, uh, you know, equally as, as big, what what is your, like, it seems like you've taken a lot of inputs and then do you have a flow um, to get to those outlines? Like what what are some um, some practices or some rituals and whatnot that you use uh, to, you know, to get to that place where I imagine your your mind is full with with the inputs and the knowledge and then you know you've got to get it's almost like a strategist right like then you've got to narrow into okay well these these are the tracks i'm going to go down or this is how i'm going to keep this somewhat organized because there's just so much yeah and oral histories are altogether different beasts than a regular uh book that's you know not as reliant upon other people's voices to drive the narrative yeah so i I'm a person where I like to have everything in front of me. So I do the transcripts and, you know, thank the Lord that I, I got the transcripts paid for because I think I, I in my Microsoft Word document where I kept all the interview transcripts, that thing was like close to a million words. <laughs> and it, it was like one of those files that took forever to open just because it was so big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, but I, I print out every single interview and I go through it with a highlighter and I look for stuff that's interesting, stuff that I think will drive the narrative, stuff that I think will be ultimately used. And I just trim it down from there. And what I, what I consider it is it's almost like you have a, a, a wet towel and you're trying to take out the excess water. So you keep twisting it out, twisting it out until it gets mm. drier and drier. And that's what I consider that process is you just go through and just try to trim it out to where you get that that prime meat of the story that's left. Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think, and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing, and this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional, and expand our mental capacity. You can sign up over at behindthehuman.com slash newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. And like, what was... what? You know, maybe give us a, excuse me, an example of, um, you know, some of the interviews that kind of went through the, the, the whole duration of basically the book, like I'm thinking like Russell Simmons and so forth, like how much time did you spend with these, with, with some of these people and like, what, what did that look like? Yeah. I, so originally I wanted to travel a lot for this book. I wanted to go to, I, I did go to New York, but I wanted to spend time in New York, time in LA, time in. San Francisco and Memphis and some of the places that I touched upon. But a lot of this reporting for the book happened during the pandemic. Yeah. So I guess that was, you know, good and on one hand and bad on the other because it restricted the traveling and actually going to these places. But then people were home with 
not a lot to do. So, so it was, you know, hours upon hours of, of phone calls where, you know, I talked to somebody like Russell for a couple hours or Cuomo D for a couple hours or uh, Bun B. You know, basically I would, <laughs> I, I would have it so they would have to get off the phone before I would try to end the phone call because, you know, the more, the more, the longer I could talk, the more info I could get, the better the book would be. So, yeah, you know, the, the conversations were as long as they would allow them. What, what do you remember some of the, your, like your, did you have any like go-to opening questions for, for, for these people? I don't think I had any type of script or go-to just because everybody's experience was so individualized to where, you know, if I was going to talk to you, I would spend, you know, not like you and doing this podcast, you know, I would do a lot of, a lot of research on the person I was talking to and be able to come up with, you know, I probably go into every conversation with at least 20 pre-planned questions, but then I'm also going to be flexible to be yeah. able to go wherever the conversation leads me. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious if, I'm curious if, if you, uh, if you can share any, I don't know, any like interesting moments in the history of, of hip hop that like really surprised you uh, just to give a flavor for listeners of 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 what this book is all about. I mean, I have a couple as well that I can share after, but I, I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah, I think one of the early moments that's really formative, and it was almost kind of a urban legend type thing that I had heard about, but actually talking to people who experienced it was the the blackout that occurred in in 1977. Yeah, that where, was one of the ones I I noted. Yeah, so. There's this blackout that happens because of a lightning strike in New York City that plunges the city into darkness. And there's a lot of desolation and decay going on, specifically in the Bronx at this time where school funds are being cut and it's near the summer Sam. And there's just a lot of helplessness and hopelessness going on. So people are looting stores and looting they're getting groceries, they're getting necessities, but there's also kids who are going in and looting electronic stores and getting DJing equipment. And DJing equipment is just coming out at the time where basically nobody in the Bronx can get DJing equipment except if you're really, really rich and fortunate because you need to have parents who can afford this equipment. And not yeah. only that, you also have to have space and somewhere to store this giant, massive equipment. And so people are looting these electronic stores and getting DJ equipment. And the next day, they're mixing and matching this equipment. So if somebody was able to get, you know, a, a turntable or somebody was able to get a mixer, they're becoming crews based off based off of what they lifted during the blackout. And that's how a lot of groups develop. And hearing some of that firsthand from people who experienced the blackout was you know, pretty special for me. It is wild to think. Uh, I know I was thinking of this when I when I was reading about that, in, it, or was that that section? Just like how something you know, a moment like that, just has such influence over, you know, uh, a genre of music that like has has changed so many lives, right? And is such a huge part of our culture. It's it's uh, it's wild. There there was one. I think it was around that same time. Um, there was something like uh, the the freeway that went in. And divide it was maybe you can provide a bit of context there too. Like I was just thinking, like wow, there's a you know the again the the impact of something um, that you would never think about. 
Yeah, the, the Crossway in the Bronx really, I first, really, I first, I'm not going to mess up this word. Bisected, bifurcated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, I butchered, butchered that word, but it really, number one, it increased white flight in the neighborhood in the Bronx. So it became overwhelmingly more black and brown. And what was left behind was this, you know, community who didn't have a lot to hope for. And yeah. what's amazing to me is they birthed this amazing genre, basically. Out of, out of nothing, out of a lot of hopelessness and, and decay. And it's like that parallel of the, or parable of that rose coming up out of the concrete. That's what I regard hip hop as, that, mm. you know, it came out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, just like after writing writing the book and going through the whole uh, project, I, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about how hip hop came to be? Well, number one, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the birth of hip hop because these kids were doing it at a time where they didn't even know, they had no idea what hip hop was going to become. Yeah. They didn't know that it was going to be long lasting and you know, permeate every strand of culture in America, not just America, but you know, just about worldwide. It, they were told by not even just adults, by you know, their older brothers and older siblings that this was something that wasn't going to last, that it was just a fad, that it was like disco. Mm -hmm. And so that's why there's, nobody was recording or documenting it as it was happening in, in real time, not for the most part. So that's why I think there's a lot of misconceptions about, about the birth of it. You know, one of the big ones, I think, is that hip-hop was started at a time to help decrease uh, gang wars, what was going on in New York City at that time. And I think people view hip-hop today as something that's you know, tied in with gangs and, and drugs and a yeah. lot of crime. But it was originally started to help alleviate that in, in New York City, where a lot of the gangs and a lot of the people who were doing that in, in the mid-70s you know, found something in hip-hop to develop their time to, instead of doing criminal activity yeah they put their get essentially put together in kind of like their own crews but with with music at the at the base of it correct yeah amazing it, it, do you did you have any like big aha moments or just like fundamental um life lessons or insights like as you're going through the project where you know whether it's um you know directly whether you know the result of that is is linked to music or not, but just as you're going through it, thinking like, "Wow, that's that's something that I can really apply," or that insight is is helpful in you know this area of my life or something like that. Yeah, there's there's a chapter near the end of the book where a lot of the book is about the history and the evolution of hip hop, but I purposefully put in a chapter just talking to artists and producers about their work process, about what it's like to do this creatively and the process for them to actually put words on paper or create soundtracks to make music that's going to you know, change lives and influence people. 
and to kind of dissect that crap is something that's going to stick with me here in the process of somebody like Bun B to put together his lyrics or Homo D or people like that, or even listening to a producer like just Blaze on how he, the job of a producer is to just not just construct a, a music, but to get the best performance that he can from the artist or to be able to, you know, make sure that the record company is okay with everything along the lines to be sure that his artist is happy. You know, just hearing little tidbits like that applies to, to me where no process is a straight line, whether you're yeah, somebody of course. like me who's writing articles or doing books or somebody like you, or somebody like, you know, a, a Grammy Award winning artist. It's always, you know, stuff that you're going to have to go through to be able to get to that mountaintop. What was helpful for you, uh, Jonathan, through the process? Because again, like I, I say four years and it's, it, it, you know, when you, it, it's almost like you say that quickly, but that, that four years is a long time. I mean, I mean, we just went through essentially, you know, two years of pandemic that, that has felt like a decade type, you know, situation. Four years is a long time. Like were there, were there some, like what, what, what kind of lows did you experience and how did you, uh, re-motivate yourself or get yourself kind of back in a place of of making sure that this book was going to come to life? Yeah, so hip-hop is such an expansive subject, you know, to where I knew that there are going to be some people that I, weren't, I wasn't going to be able to talk to for this book who I would want to talk to. Some of those Mount Rushmore people like Jay-Z or Nas, and that's yeah. something that I knew going in. But I also knew that I'd be able to talk to people who would believe in this project. So, you know, having some of those interviews that I didn't get that I would have really have loved to, um, that that could be tough to deal with. And also... Just on that though, Jonathan, did you ever think like, oh, because well, you, I mean, I, I, what I've learned, at least with the show is... Um, eventually, you know, there's enough connection points where you can kind of get to a, a person at one point. Just it's the question always becomes, how long is that going to take, obviously? But I, I wonder if you if that crossed your mind, it's like, okay, well, I'm close here with, I don't know, I'm just using a fictitious, fictitious example, like Jay-Z's, you know, probably just around the corner on this one. If I just wait another, I don't know, six months, maybe, that, you know, things will align. But then obviously the book will never come out, right? Yeah, that was the, that was the other thing is that, hip-hop kind of moves at its own timeline. So I could feel like I would be close to killing somebody, but then it would take another month or another two months or three months. And yeah, but my favorite one was that somebody responded to a direct message over Twitter, like more than two years after I sent it, <laughs> saying that they were ready for an interview. That's awesome. it. Yeah. It was, you know, like I just sent the, the DM like last week or like, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what happened in these last couple of years? So, so that was that process could be frustrating, but you know, every time I got a really cool interview with somebody like Curtis Blow or DMC, it would yeah. just elevate me so much that it would negate any negative feelings that I was feeling and let me know that I was on the right path to be able to produce the book that I wanted to produce. Yes, you know, such an I, I can only imagine just the energy for after some of those conversations, especially like you know the amount of time that you're spending with them, obviously to, to gather this level of detail and, and information. 
must have been such a flow state, you know, as a as a writer and journalist. Yeah. Yeah. And it you know, that process of getting into that state of knowing, okay, you have confirmation that you're on the right track. It's just a feeling of lightness, of brevity, of like I can't, you know, and, and it's also like yeah, this stuff is so good that I can't wait to get this out, but this book still isn't going to come out for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing that you're sitting on a what you think is a gold mine is also can be can be uh both light and you know tough to deal with. Of well. course. Of course. Well, one of the things that you shared with me when we when we first met um before recording or before meeting for this this podcast recording. Uh, was your meditation practice or that you've had a, a pretty long-standing practice. I'm First of all, I'd just love to know what that looks like and how it's evolved over the years, but also just how you you know found that uh, practice uh, being helpful for this project. But then I imagine just, you know, really uh, all of your, your, your writing initiatives and, and life in general. Yeah, so I just, as you were talking, I pulled up my Calm app that I used to nice. meditate and it's a great app where they kind of guide you and walk you through meditations. And, you know, if you're feeling anxiety or if you're feeling stress, they have specific uh, meditation guides for that. And you can time yourself, you know, whether you want to do three minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I usually try to get about 10 minutes a day. So I have 249 hours and 24 minutes of awesome. using this app. And my longest streak was 535 days. I'm currently on a 24-day streak. So yeah, that, that really helps clear my mind, get me started. I try to do it. I try to do it first thing in the morning, but having young kids, <laughs> sometimes your alarm <laughs> yeah, goes totally. off and you're, you're already on go. So yeah. sometimes it can be mid-morning when I try to try to take that break. And it's it's a reset. You know, I think a misconception about meditating is that you need to be good at it and you need to really uh, you know, concentrate on your breath and empty out your mind. But no, I think meditation is all about creating that awareness and you know, just being aware of your thoughts and what's going through your head and not being attached to your thoughts and knowing that whatever your emotion that you're feeling is fleeting and it's not going to be forever. Yeah, it's, it's been a, a big key for me. Something else that I do is I like to play basketball. I wake up at 5 a.m. on Mondays and Fridays and play basketball with the group of guys I've been playing with for a long time. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, there's no better way for me to start the day than <laughs> uh, getting a nice run in. Uh, I actually, recently, I, I was playing and I broke my, my pinky. And uh. I, had to, I had to set out for about four weeks and... Honestly, I was conscious about it. I, I, I just felt like something was off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was not being able to play basketball because it's a big stress reliever for me. What ha- What about your the so the group of guys are uh, that you're playing with? Like, what were the what were their reactions when the book came out? I'm assuming they obviously knew you were working on this for for many years. Yeah, they they were happy. Um, it was. It was a cool feeling. A lot of them, a lot of them, I made them buy it. If yeah. they didn't, if they didn't buy it, I played yeah. tougher defense on them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love it. What? So, just like a general, 
I know every day is different, but you know, in general, like what, what do your days look like? Cause I mean, the other thing too, is I, I, you know, you're, you're writing this book, but I mean, you're, you're also writing for the New York times and I imagine there's probably other projects and, and whatnot that's going on. Like how, how do you typically structure your days to create? Yeah. Every day is different. Uh, you know, if I can have a prototypical day, it's probably getting the kids off to school. Uh, trying to get a workout in either before or after uh, they go to school. And then it's just, you know, showing up at your computer and, and trying to get the, the work done that's ahead of you. If I'm working on a book, I'm just trying to make progress that day. I think the key with the book is taking a million steps forward. You'll get lost in the forest if you try to think of the book as a, a done process or as a whole. I'm working on page 32 that day, then my focus is on page 32, and then it'll be on page 33. So I think it's just trying to be focused and, and dedicated and steadfast and getting getting work done that day. And then my whole thing, especially when I had kids, was I always felt like when I'm working, I should be with the kids, especially when they weren't of school age. And you know, yeah. if I'm in the opposite, you know, that's going on. So that was something that I had to really rectify. And the the, the way that I rectified it was realizing that that feeling is always going to be there. <laughs> sure. And just doing the best that you can and being present in the moments when I'm working and being present in the moments when I'm with my kids go, goes a long way. Do you have any, uh, I mean, outside of the meditation, do you have any practices that have helped? Like do you, do you journal or is there anything else that, that has helped, uh, I guess, train that presence? Yeah, the, the other thing that I do is I try to do uh, between 20 and 30 minutes of yoga daily, just mm-hmm. not long sessions, but just, just quick sessions to you know, kind of work on breathing, get my mind right. I think the, the yoga also helps. I do, uh, I don't know if you've heard of her, but yoga with Adrian. She, she does, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, she does uh, like, you know, between 25, 35 minute videos on, on YouTube. And she has 30 day sessions and she's a, she's a good instructor. I like her a lot. Okay. What, um, you know, when you're, when your kids are old enough to, you know, pick up the book and whatnot. Like, what do you hope that they get out of this and and think about when they get to the end of it, you know, knowing that their dad wrote this book? (laughs) I'm laughing because (laughs) I I think about like now when I showed them the book and they looked at it for five seconds and then went on to doing whatever else they were doing. Um, I get that. I I, I should (laughs) go ahead. Well, I was just say I showed my six-year-old uh, my book. He and his, his first comment was, "There's no photos. There's no pictures." I said, "No, there, there are not. It would have been easier if there were." <laughs> exactly. Um, Go ahead. I, I, I hope that <laughs> I hope by then that they'll be reading books. I think it's been difficult cultivating a love of reading with, with my kids because. There's so many other options for them to have these days, right? Like when I yeah. was growing up, it was reading books was just a joy and a great outlet and an escape. Where now they have so many other things at their disposal between video games and iPads and 
you know, one, it's still one of the most amazing things to me, not to sound too old, but with my kids is that they know that if there's a show that they want to watch, if there's a cartoon or something, they can just watch it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, I can't say no, this only comes on at it's so true. o'clock on Wednesday <laughs> evening. You know, like when I was growing up, if I wanted to watch Ninja Turtles, if I missed it at that certain point, I had to wait another week. Yeah. You know, to have everything on demand is just a new world that I, I think that I'm still trying to navigate for them. But I think like, because I've thought about this as well. I mean, and I'm as I'm recording this, I'm staring at a bookshelf and... I mean, I, I, I have a mix of like Kindle and different mediums and audiobooks and stuff like that. But I, I just, I feel like, I mean, because this has been years and years and decades now where, you know, smart people have, have essentially tried to replace books with other mediums. But it just, I don't know, I feel like it's a medium that just will always be there in some capacity. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I sure hope so. I... I haven't gotten into, so I have a Kindle. I've read books off a Kindle. I still love that physical book in my hand and the joy of finishing that last page and closing a book. I haven't gotten into audiobooks. Have you? A little bit, but I'm like you, like, and even with Kindle, like, I like to be able to highlight things. The only reason I use Kindle uh, is... Uh, I I like the idea that if I'm going somewhere, because I usually have a few books on the go, um, and if I've got a big 510 pager like your book, you know that starts to get heavy in the bag. But I'm I'm just so I find it challenging because I'm always back and forth. Like like I said, I'm looking at a bookshelf, and to me, still, and I've got your physical copy as well. It just there's I don't know there's something about holding the book and like there seems to be a relationship. Like, I mean, obviously I'm interviewing you when we met, but I mean, even if that wasn't the case, like I feel like I have a, a closer relationship with the author that put in the, the time to produce this for whatever reason, because of the physical mm-hmm. part of it. No, I've never thought about that. But now that you mention it, I definitely think that that's true. That, that you, there's some type of bond created, right? Between the author of the book and the reader when you're holding something that the author created in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know. There's just a, a heightened level of, of appreciation uh, for, for those words. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess we'll see, but I mean, I just, I, I don't see it as it's hard for me to imagine a world where, where books are just completely gone. They're, they're just so entrenched in, in culture and even people that, you know, I include myself in this, that, you know, explore or like other mediums, uh, there's something that, you know, draws you back and there's a bit of a, a mix there. So I hope so, at least, and especially I imagine you as well, someone that, you know, for the most part, uh, or, or, you know, a couple of your books now are oral histories on huge topics. Um, you know, I imagine you want these to stick around. Um, well, it is, it, it's probably been like the prediction of the downfall of books, like once radio started, right? And then television yeah. came, and then you know, all these other things came, and you're right, books are still going. So yeah, yeah I think they're, they're here to stay. <laughs> yeah. So what did when you finish the book, like what, or, or really any big project, you know, like what do you? do you celebrate? Do you, you know, do you jump right into the next project? Like what, you know, what, what's your flow in that sense? 
I'm awful about <laughs> taking a moment to, to appreciate the, the end process. I'm, I need to get better at that. I really, really do. Um, this book, I didn't celebrate it all. I just wanted to get to the finish line. And once I got there, I felt like I needed to decompress. Yeah. I went from one book to another to another. So this is the first time where I don't have any type of book on the horizon. And I told myself that I wanted to at least wait until the new year before I even started to explore what the next topic would be. Sure. And that's what I appreciated is that I gave myself this time to do that because it's been trying to you know, be a be a journalist at the times and work on books and Know, be a be a good dad. It's been been a lot to juggle and manage throughout the last few years. So taking something off the plate, I've been thankful that I have the foresight to not jump into something uh, so quickly right after this book finished. Well, I can imagine. I mean, it's it's got to be all consuming. I mean, you're so you're so deep in a topic for for multiple years that you know even when you hand in the final manuscript it's it's got to be like wow okay now what do i do with my time now on you know for the last four years and spending you know not just like physical time but just even like your mental real estate and thought process on um oh yeah like this is the piece or this quote or this story will fit well in this chapter here whatever right it's 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 all consuming yeah you're right i mean it doesn't it doesn't leave you once you jump out from that computer screen. No. Right. It's something you think of when you wake up and when you, when you before you go to sleep. Uh, it's a constant companion. So what's got you excited uh for 2023 as we, you know, not to try to put another book on on your plate, but just it's just some topics that are floating around in your mind that uh that your your curiosity is is lit up from. Yeah, I have some story ideas of I'm going to dive into for the times. I don't know if I can, I'm at liberty to, sure. to say what they are right now, but uh, I'm excited about some topics that I'm going to get into and be able to to cover. And, you know, having that time without a book on my mind to really focus and harness my, my journalist skills for the paper is something I'm definitely looking forward to. Amazing. Well, last question for you. And it's just, you know, like what, what makes you smile each day? I think my my family, just to bring it back from the beginning, my yeah. very supportive and loving wife, and my sons are, you know, they're at that age where they're eight and five, like I said, and they're their best friends, and they're growing up way too fast, but, you know, that's the whole cycle of life, and mm-hmm. you know, seeing them develop their own little personalities and, and what they're into and interested in has been special. Well, you know, I'd like to send send a little love and gratitude your way for you know, making making the time, for, of course, for being on the show. But then, also just you know, just being uh, relentless and 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 producing just beautiful works of art uh, is what I consider this book and your other your projects. I I mean, I can only imagine once once your boys understand you know what you're been able to do uh with your books and your your profession that they'll they'll be quite proud so thank you mark i really really appreciate those words and i appreciate your time and everything that you're doing really appreciate you